Uh, if you have a Bible uh, this morning, I'm going to invite you to the book of Matthew, chapter 19. I'll, I'll read it, um, the text here in just a minute. But um, we've been working our way through this series, um, the pillars of our faith, these kind of big doctrinal um, important things that we need to hold on to and we need to remember. Uh, and today we're taking up the doctrine of creation. I, I want to set this up by, by saying it this way. Uh, the other night in the car, uh, my kids and I, there were a couple of kids. I can't remember how many were in my there was two or three, five, I don't know how many. There were, there were some kids in the car. And we got to talking about um, misunderstood lyrics of a song. Anybody with me on this? Anybody ever completely botched it? I mean, like, you're like, dude, whatever. And so I got tickled at myself because for the longest time, I thought Lucille had 400 kids. And if you're not quite cultured enough... To know that song, I will do for you what I did for my kids. I broke out the Kenny Rogers and made them listen to Lucille. That there were 400 children in the crop in the field. I played it for them and they said, that is what it says. No, it's four hungry children. Like four hungry children. Anyway, we had this whole thing. Um, and it was really funny. We laughed a lot. I probably laughed more than anybody. And I helped my kids, you know, be cultured by helping them see Kenny Rogers, they sing along to Kenny Rogers. So um, I, I'm telling you all that to say uh, nowhere are the lyrics of the story that God is telling more misinterpreted or misguided or uh, uh, misunderstood than the topic today of creation. Like in our moment, in the world in which we live, um, we're hearing 400 children, even though that's not the lyric that's, that was actually in place. And so I want to recognize that as we get going and say, in light of that, we will not say everything that needs to be said today. We're going to try to say the things that are the biggest pieces. And then this has to work itself out in our normal relationships, in the normal ways that we interact with the world and interact um, with uh, the, the people who make up that world, the individuals who make up that world. So um, the doctrine stated, um, if, um, doctrine of creation, the best we could come up with here, is that God, by his wisdom, power, and goodness, God created the cosmos to flourish and then entrusted it to humanity. By his wisdom, power, and goodness. God created the cosmos to flourish. Um, that's what the cultural mandate is what they call it. And for, in the, the very, I mean, like page one of the Bible, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. There's something in there that ties the flourishing of the world to humanity's willingness um, to engage in the ways that God wants um, us to engage. By his wisdom, power, and goodness, God created the cosmos to flourish and entrusted it to knuckleheads like you and me. Uh, and that part may have been the part that we're like, oh, God, come on, you could have done better. But he did. He entrusted it to us. So in Matthew um, chapter 19, invite you there. Uh, it may seem like a kind of a strange place to uh, um, do this particular um, sermon from, but I, I think the big, the big pieces, again, we're not going to say everything that needs to be said, but hopefully the big pieces uh, will fall into place for you. Uh, chapter 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him. He healed them there. Pharisees came up to him, tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce, divorce one's wife for any cause. And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command um, one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you, just note the two verbal differences there, allowed you to divorce uh, your wives, but... From the beginning, it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. We'll pause there because there's a little bit more we'll read here in just a second. But the big three pieces, first three pieces, um, come out of uh, this part. Number one, uh, there is a cultural conversation happening. Back to verse three, Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife uh, for any cause? Now, you um, you think to yourself, that's just kind of a weird question to throw up on Jesus. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Um, but what you need to know is that there was a cultural conversation going on there, just like there's a cultural conversation going on today about Marriage, the nature of marriage, about humanity, about male and female. There's a conversation then, conversation today. Uh, back then, uh, there was the folks who uh, typically tended toward the, a more restrictivist position and a more permissive uh, position. So that restrictive, the school of Shammai is what it's called. You'll win Bible trivia someday with that right there. Uh, the school of Shammai said this, uh, that except for um, adultery, you shouldn't divorce your wife. Uh, the more permissive, um, cued on the thing, uh, on the question, uh, for any cause. The school of Hillel, which was the more permissive side, said, uh, ladies, if you, like, made him a meal he didn't like, he could kick you to the curb. Pretty uncomfortable, huh? <laughs> it sure is. It is. And back in those days, uh, you know, there, there was not a lot of economic certainty after the fact. So, I mean, this is, this is big stuff. That cultural conversation was happening then. And we're still in the midst of a cultural conversation of more restrictive positions and more permissive positions. And there's nothing new under the sun. That's what the Bible says. We're still engaged in conversations about um, these, these things. Uh, people will have substitutes. People will have questions. Uh, people will have uh, things that uh, uh, make it better, thing, and people will have things that make it worse. Sin steps into the created order, attaches itself to the goodness like a parasite, and then perverts it all. This is the cultural conversation into which uh, Jesus said, just real briefly, um, some of the things that express itself today, maybe not, can you divorce your wife for any reason, uh, but something along the lines of, well, uh, you know, it's kind of old thinking, antiquated thinking, or, hey, I'm free, I can do what I want to do, or this isn't hurting anybody, any of these sound familiar? These are the kinds of things that are happening there. Um, I just want to note here that into this cultural conversation, Jesus does have something to say. He holds an opinion. The very first two words of verse 4, he answered. <laughs> Jesus does have something to say. Uh, well, Jesus didn't address this. He has something to say. And what he is consistently doing, and I just want to say this out loud so that you and I understand. What he's consistently doing is holding forth the standard. All throughout the text here, um, both here as well as the rest of the Gospels and the church, um, the, the letters to the churches that followed, uh, they're just holding out the standard. They can't address every problem or every situation that comes up. They just hold out the standard. And that's one of the better ways um, to approach this. Uh, apparently, um, when they train treasury agents um, to uh, spot counterfeits, they lock them in a room, not with counterfeits. They lock them in the room with a genuine $100 bill. And then they have to learn everything that they can about this $100 bill. So that when a fake $100 bill comes along, they're like, oh, this isn't that. 
They spend so much time on the real thing. They can sniff out something that's false. Jesus does the same thing. I will say this. Nothing is too controversial for Jesus to step into. Um, nothing is uh, too difficult for him. He is not silent on this. He does have an opinion and he will stand for the truth because he is the truth and he can do nothing less. Where historical Christianity and the kind of cultural trends of our day where those two things get crossways, it's at that point right there, at that intersection, where uh, they run afoul of one another. It's at that intersection where the witness of the church and the truth is needed the most. We're swimming upstream all morning long on this issue to the cultural trends to commercials, uh, to stuff that shows up on Disney Channel, um, to uh, every other place that you can possibly imagine. We are swimming upstream, and Jesus has something to say. But at that intersection of cultural trends and the church's uh, uh, witness to the truth, at that intersection is where not only is the church needed, but also where the most uh, effective place to witness to the gospel often is. We step into that. We don't need to retreat. Augustine, um, third uh, 300s was about when he lived, bishop of uh, in North Africa, famous, famous writer. Here's one of the things he says. We are both, the church is both against the world and for the good of the world. The and doesn't quite translate, but the, you read his writings, this is what he means. Against the world, for the good of the world. It's both. So, some people tend one way or the other, right? I'm going to be against the world. So they're mad about everything. Well, this ain't the way that it was when I grew up. It's not the way that it is when you grew up. And some of that needed to change. I noticed nobody amen that. I just noticed it. And for the good of the world, both, not one or the other. Both of those things are really, uh, really important. Jesus, I, I would just note here, this, Jesus is always sharpest. Not toward the struggler, but toward the religionist. Can we back up here for just a second? Verse 3. Uh, Pharisees came up to him, and what, what's my verb there? Uh, excuse me, my verb is tested. And tested him. Jesus is always sharpest towards the religious people who test him. They are determined that they have some sort of bargaining chip that they're going to uh, play in order to get God on their side here. They don't. They don't. So we want to be really thoughtful about how we engage not only this topic, but also uh, the world around us as we do so. Okay, uh, just quickly, uh, moving on to uh, this second big concept here. There is a cultural conversation. Jesus is not silent. He has something to say. Look at verse 4. Jesus answered them, Have you not read uh, that he who created them from the beginning uh, made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, shall hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Therefore they are no longer, so they are no longer two, one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So there is creation. Um, and what we want to say about that is that God did it. Uh, if you came thinking we were going to stake out a, a claim on how he did it and that kind of thing, uh, we're not. Okay? He did it. That's what matters. The how, the process of it all, those are all fun conversations to have um, late at night when you're a college student. But uh, you know, when the, the who is really what we're after here and the why. Creation. Um, there, there are two things that he said. One is there is design in this. God didn't just kind of willy-nilly throw this together. It wasn't um, on Fridays at my high school, um, they had um, Texas goulash. Anybody with me on this? 
where, where they take all the leftovers and throw them into some version of a casserole and put it in a bowl for you? You wonder why we have so many problems. <laughs> this is not God. He's not looking going, what am I going to do for Friday? Oh, we'll just take the rest of the leftovers and put it all together and see what happens. There, there is a design here. And specifically, in verse 4, um, he, he, um, he, have you not read that? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And so here's what I want to say to you. Um, God created, and he created male and female. And what we mean by that, and this is important to say out loud, in our moment where um, the, the cultural trends and, and the truth of the scriptures um, are, are very much um, at odds with one another, is that the biology that God created does not or is not um, yielding to the ideology that somebody else created. It's important to be clear on that. Because God did this, and he did it in his wisdom and power and goodness. And goodness. These are all really important things. Biology doesn't yield uh, to our ideology. The, the, the second part on this, and, and before we, you know, you don't want to jump on the religious bandwagon here. To You just don't want to do that because you, you end up on the other side here. The second part of that is the reality of our culture is there are people who genuinely struggle with these kinds of issues. If we took a poll in here, we don't have to because I know the answer. If we took a poll in here and we said, everybody raise your hand who knows somebody who's struggling with these issues, there would not be a hand that stayed down unless you're lying. Some of it is in our family. Some of it in our very close friend circle. Some of it's, it's friends of friends, but we know somebody. We would all be raising our hand, every one of us. And it's people who struggle that need this kind of truthful tenderness to say, hey, here's the reality in which God, this is the best thing that God has for you. These are the, the good things that God desires for you. These are the things that we want. There is a tenderness to that um, and a truthfulness to that. I want to uh, just make a pastoral observation about male and female and how sin as a parasite kind of perverts these things. I'm going to step very, very gingerly um, into this, okay? Very gingerly, especially on this first part, because I think femininity gets corrupted by sin um, when, um, uh, the, the, when uh, boy, th this is just thin, thin ice. I recognize this, okay? Courage, courage, Trent, courage. Um, femininity get, gets um, uh, twisted, perverted, if you will, um, when the need for control becomes the idol that you bow down to. And, and in doing so, it actually makes the world smaller for you. Well, no, 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 smaller. Because how many things can you genuinely control? Not very many. The other way, just by observation, that this gets twisted, that, that the parasite perverts it, um, is when you buy a lie, ladies, that you don't have a contribution to make to the world. And I just want to say, you do. And I, she's in the room. I told the 830 I wasn't sure I was going to pull this off. I'm going to go ahead and try. Um, my wife is in the room, and if you want to know one thing about my wife, there are many things to know about her that are amazing, but one thing about my wife, she is a healer. Um, I have said this to multiple people before. I don't know what it looked like 
when Peter put his hands on people and they got healed. I know what it looks like when my wife does. God's given her these profound skills and amazing abilities to, to, through physical therapy just to do some things. And I'm just like, that's amazing. Stunning. Imagine if you, in all of your giftedness, in all of the things that Jesus wants to do through you, imagine if you pulled that back and didn't offer that to the world. Ladies, listen to me. That's a, that's a very, very small, small world. And God wants you to be a part of the story that he's telling in the world. That's very thin ice for me. I know how masculinity gets jacked up. Masculinity gets jacked up when we buy the, the lie that power is the idol that we need to bow down to. We, we oftentimes associate it with physical prowess. That's um, why we uh, make idols out of... Um, Athletes and, and other folks who have this profound, profound uh, physical um, attribute, but power, when power becomes an idol. And what happens in light of that, just note, please, what happens in light of that, one, two kind of effects that I'll observe. One is, is that w- what we become is a kind of people who say this. Well, uh, th- this is the expression of masculinity. This one particular lane is the expression of masculinity. And therefore, men do not belong in the arts. Masculine men do not belong in the arts. And if you are artistic, well, that means something about you. I just want to point this out to all of the men in here who hold um, artistic things in you, in you. David the king would go out and conquer enemies, bloodshed everywhere. He'd sit down under a tree with a harp and write a song about it. I mean, come on. We have artistic people in here. We have people who make things with their hands, men who make things with their hands, artistic people. That's a good thing. The the second way that this masculinity gets perverted, I think, um, in particular, is is affection. Because we associate it in this particular, masculinity only in this particular lane, sometimes we associate it in this particular lane, um, uh, we have kind of reduced male affection um, to a handshake or the bro hug. You with me on the bro hug? Every dude in here knows what, you come up, be like, hey man, you give him a little some of that, you wrap that around, pop, pop, and that's it right there. That's it, it's good, done. We're good now. Then you step back to make sure you don't get too close. But there is overwhelming sociological data that says men in friendships, and particularly men with sons who are affectionate with one another, are promoting the kind of security that produces really good, secure men. Does the world have an an abundance of really secure, good men? Are we running a little short on some of this sometimes? So you dads in here, I, it, earlier in the 830 service, uh, there was a brand new dad set right back there. I just told him straight up, like, hug and kiss your sons. I mean, grab them, nuzzle them, all that kind of stuff when they're um, 13 months and when they're 13. Because they need it both times. And you want to create that kind of really strong, secure bond between you and your son. You dads in here, you do that. Do it. It's really a matter of our kind of Western 
in particular American culture that pulls the affection um, out of some of these relationships or reduces it down to something very small. Um, I'll give you two examples. Uh, last week, my Baylor Bears, the men's basketball team, uh, played K-State. They lost. I did, it was at K-State and they lost. I'm okay, because we beat Texas last night. It's pretty great. All is, all is well in the world. Um, the, the coach for K-State is named Jerome Tang. He was on Scott Drew's staff for 19 years. And there's a, a little a video that got posted on social media where when they saw one another, when they both got out onto the court, they ran up and embraced one another. And they just stood there hugging. None of this bro hug stuff. Like, they just stood there hugging. Like, talking to one another in the midst of a hug. And then it was a weird little thing. Like, they started to dance just a little bit. Like, nine or ten seconds worth. Because that's the kind of men that they are. Highly successful. Highly achieving. And deeply, deeply respectful and loving towards the other. Uh, um, Many of you know, we did some stuff with our Afghan friends um, last year. At one point, last spring sometime, we hosted a pizza party in the park that's right outside of a big apartment complex where a lot of them landed. And so this one particular uh, time, we're hosting a pizza, uh, pizza party and... Um, this one guy served in the army, big tough dude, um, named Hosta. He comes walking by, and I'm like, "Hey man, come come get some come get some pizza." Like broken English, you know. That's like pizza, you know. And you come on, and like, he's like, "Oh, okay, okay." So he comes over, he grabs my hand. Except it wasn't like this. I mean, like full on interdigitation, holding hands like we're on a date. Now, if you're in here and squirming along with me, I just want you to know I was squirming too. And we walked from about here to the back wall, maybe a little bit further to the pizza place, all the while talking in broken English. I have no idea what the conversation was about because... This dude was as masculine as they come, folks. Tough. Tough. Please hear me. I don't think we need to go back to Romans 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm good, okay? I really am. But there's something about saying, if you are an affectionate male, that means that, dot, 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 in our culture. That's one of the ways that the culture is trending. And I'm telling you, the Bible says, people who belong to a family, there is goodness and security that comes out of being affectionate with one another. You don't have to pervert masculinity in that way. Okay, that's design. Uh, Second part is purpose. Purpose um, is this. Um, In verse verse 5, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So first of all, marriage is foundational. It is foundational for human flourishing. God created the cosmos in his wisdom, goodness, and power. He created the cosmos to flourish. Foundational to that um, is marriage. Does that mean everybody has to get married? Look at me. Does that mean everybody has to get married? No. But there is a kind of supportive um, attitude um, towards this. Marriage is the foundational building block to human flourishing. It is um, the uh, best predictor of child poverty um, and and any number of other uh, complications in childhood. I mean, just on and on and on we could go. There's sociological data galore. Secondly, marriage is clearly defined in God's eyes. <clears throat> clearly defined. Uh, again, verse 5. This, this, therefore, he created a male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. 
That, that, is, that is marriage. A husband and a wife, a male and a female, joined together, joined together in God's eyes. This is what we're talking about when we talk about marriage. Um, culture will do as it wishes. Supreme Court will do as it wishes. Any number of other things will do as they wish. Um, we we are, are people who follow a king. And he is the one who created it and therefore um, is the one who uh, uh, gets to define it. And lastly, marriage is, the, this is important to say in our day and in our age, marriage is the joining of lives inseparably. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. Um, in, in, in this instance, one plus one is equal to what? You would think. You really would. But here's the cool part. So many of us logically are on board with that. But there's a logic to marriage that is miraculous. And so we just, we just say, God, you're the one who made it. And you're the one who know, that knows how it works. Therefore, we're going to let you tell us how it works. It's a joining food. So um, are there exceptions? Yes. Uh, we'll talk more about this one uh, here in just a second. Um, are there exceptions? Yes. But why, why are there exceptions? It's because of the hardness of the human heart. Not necessarily yours. For some of you, you've had to live through some really terrible circumstances in your marriage. Your heart may be tender. It may be um, your spouse's, that is. But it, it, these things happen because of the hardness of the human heart. Uh, the other thing that comes up, and I, just, I bring it up because it comes up. Um, culture, one of the narratives is, well, the Bible's not really all that pro-marriage. I mean, look at all those crazy Old Testament people. They married like multiple wives, you know. And blah, 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 blah. My, my response is the same every time. And I, just, I want to encourage you with this and equip you with this. When you read that and, you, and people ask, why, 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 why was it this way? Ask this question. How did it turn out for them? How did it turn out for Abraham with Hagar? With Joseph, with Rebecca and Leah and their two servants? How did it turn out for King David, for Solomon? Just keep reading. How did it turn out? Did it turn out well for anybody? No. So by telling the story, it's telling the story. Third word is the word authority. Look, look at verse 6 again. They are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. As the creator, God has the authority. We don't, and that's part of our problem with the issue. Like, we don't have the authority. Um, <clears throat> when we step out from under God's authority, when we live according to a couple of those lies we mentioned earlier, hey, no, I'm, it's not hurting anybody. I'm free to do what I want. Um, you know, you're kind of old school and you're thinking whatever it may be. When we step out from under the authority of God, um, what we say on the first step is, hey, I can do this on my own. When we're under the authority of God, we're saying, okay, God, I want you to give me direction. When we step out from that, first step is, I can do this on my own. The second step is, I have to do this on my own. And the last step is, oh my gosh, I'm on my own. And people who make it through that process, who step out of authority and move from, I can do this on my own, to, I have to do this on my own, to, oh my gosh, I'm on my own. When they realize there is no shepherd, and they do want 
They don't have a place to lie down. They do not have somebody watching over them. When they step out from under the authority and move down that terrible, terrible progression, um, it typically ends up one of two ways. One, they dive headfirst into anxiety. Oh my gosh, I'm on my own. What in the world am I going to do? And they cover it with any number of things or try to figure out how to live with it. Uh, Or number two, they go into violence. In order to enforce their way. So that they don't feel the idea that they're actually on their own. I'll just briefly point this out. Um, Cain kills Abel in Genesis chapter 4. And then, uh, right after that story, there's a run of a genealogy that is seven generations long. Seven is the number of fulfillment. So seven generations long. That ends with a guy named Lamech, who's a, uh, like a, like he's the, the, the big boss, uh, big bad boss of all, you know, the video games where you got to fight the bad guy at the end. He's that guy. And, and basically what, it's, what he says about him is, um, I will take the wives that I want and I will kill any young man who gets in the way. So women are hurt, young men are hurt. When we step out from under authority and we kind of work our way through, um, okay, God, you're in control. I'm going to let you do it. I'll follow your ways too. I can do this on my own. I have to do this on my own. Oh my gosh, I'm on my own. If we, if we find ourselves expressed in violence, what happens in this particular area? Women and young men are hurt. Here's our world, folks. Here's our world. As the creator, God has the authority to speak. And part of our problem is, is that we, we don't have the authority and that's, that's our issue. Uh, secondly, look at verse 7 and 8. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed. Did you note the difference in the verbs? Command versus allow, allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Questions about the authority of God is our problem, not his. That's our problem. That's our issue. He knows the difference between a genuine question and a leading question. Genuine question is, God, whatever you say is fine with me, but I sure don't understand. Leading question is, so God, let me, uh, let me ask you a question. And really, it's just an excuse to to continue to do the things that you wanted to do in the first place. And he knows the difference. Last thing on this, and uh, Tim Keller is famous for saying this. If we don't have a God that we can disagree with, we don't actually have a God at all. You've been to a fun house where you stand in front of the mirror and all of a sudden you um, is like larger than life, you know, science because it's just the way that it gets warped. If we don't have a God who can disagree with us, we're standing in front of a funhouse mirror and all the, the God that I'm worshiping is just me on a bigger distorted platform. He has authority. And questions about his authority, that's my problem. That's not his. Last thing. He exercises authority for our good. Look at verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. He exercises authority for our good. There is a clear standard. There is a clear standard. Uh, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. You see that word, that phrase, sexual immorality? In the Greek, you spell it this way. P-O-R-N-E-I-A. P-O-R-N-E-I-A. Porneia. Anybody? 
It's a catch-all term that says, hey, no matter how the parasite of sin expresses itself um, in this realm of sexuality, listen, it's still not what God desires. Everybody, I want you to draw a circle in your mind. Can you draw a circle in your mind? You got it? The edge of that circle, the boundary, if you will, of that circle is the covenant of marriage. Inside of that circle, inside the covenant of marriage, God says yes, and he blesses sexuality so that we have... um, Comfort and uh, encouragement and kids come into the world and any number of other things. Outside of that circle, it's no. Not because he's mean. Not because he's like, oh, God, you're so old school and you're thinking. But because it's not good. It's just not. There's an old preacher um, illustration. I'll go ahead and use it here. How many of you set fires in your living room? Well, I, one time I dropped it. No, 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 no. Like intentionally set fires in your living room. Maybe more than you think because you have a little like concrete box or metal box or something. Some of you turn the switch on or whatever. Maybe, you know, all of a sudden you got fire, right? But when I said set fires in your living room, you're thinking like right next to your couch on the carpet. Because a fire next to your couch on a carpet, that's bad. Can we agree with this? That's a fire inside of a fireplace, particularly on a cold night, which apparently we won't have anymore because it's February in Houston. I don't know, 80 degrees outside. A fire in a fireplace, though, is comforting, warming, soothing, enjoyable. The fire in the right context is a really good thing. The fire outside of the right context is particularly destructive. Do we need to connect the dots? Okay. Furthermore, society is starting to figure this out. Um, there's a book that came out last year um, called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. It's written by a lady. She does not know Jesus. Uh, she's British. Uh, those two things don't correlate, by the way. Uh, but she, she's, I don't know, felt like I needed to say that. Um, she's a former um, columnist for Playboy and, and several other um, secular magazines. She wrote a book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, Louise Perry, and here's the quote coming out of that. In order to change the incentive structure, meaning instead of rewarding um, bad behavior and, and things that lead to uh, um, uh, kind of greater, per- what we would call greater perversion in the world, in order to change the incentive structure, we would need a technology that, discour- that discourages Short-termism in male sexual behavior protects the economic interests of mothers and creates a stable environment for the raising of kids. So we want to promote good behavior among men. We want to protect the interests of moms, and we want to make sure that kids grow up in a stable environment. That's what we're after. And everybody can say amen to that. This is a good thing, yeah? Even the nice lady from London, this is what she's saying. And here's the, here's the, 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 boy, this, I mean, like highlight this. And we do already have such a technology. Even if it is old, clunky, and prone to periodic failure, it's called monogamous marriage. The world is figuring out that their way didn't work, and so they're saying that way wasn't good. The Bible all along has said that's not good, therefore it's not going to work. God has the authority. Last thing. Uh, This is a strange passage to finish with, but I want to go ahead and finish verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry at all. (laughs) Hey, Jesus, you raised the bar pretty high. Uh, 
knuckleheads. Uh, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those whom, to, to whom it is given. There are eunuchs who've been so from birth. There are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by um, men. And there are eunuchs who've been made, uh, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And so what he's saying is that there is a path of singlehood um, for any number of reasons. And you walk that path and you walk it with Jesus. And there's a path of married life. And if that's the deal, you walk that path and you walk it with Jesus. Either way, two things are true. Number one, the truth carries a certain punch here. That's why they're like, Jesus, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. The truth carries a punch and it always does. It always does. Um, it, it is though this difference, the truth that people lived out in this way, either singleness with Jesus, living according to the standards that he has set, or married with Jesus and living according to the standards that he set. Either one of those, <clears throat> either one of those, the truth carries a punch. And furthermore, it's that difference that set Christians apart so distinctly in the first century Roman Empire. Church family, this is the 21st century. And it's this difference that will set us apart in the 21st century Western world. The truth carries a punch. And the second part is that uh, the, the sacrifice is real. So the word here is altar. The sacrifice is real. So, you know, just picture me in a suit. Doesn't happen very often, but just picture me in a suit. Really nervous guy in a tuxedo right here to my left. Really beautiful girl coming down the aisle in white. We have this moment. And what do we call this gathering area right here? What do we call it? The what? The altar. The altar. Because you're going to the altar. Like you're going to get married here at the altar. Somebody help me. An altar is a place where things get sacrificed and die. Selfishness gets sacrificed and dies. Like singleness gets sacrificed. And I was like... Maybe my preferred future gets sacrificed and dies. It's an altar. It's an altar. But from that altar comes something beautiful and lasting and amazing and good for the world. From that comes something incredible. And some of you have been at it for decades. Good for you. Stay at it. Some of you have been, I mean, you're, you're counting in terms of, oh, yeah, we're entering our fourth decade, whatever. I mean, like, good for you. Stay at it. Stay at it. The sacrifice is real. I, I want to finish here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, here's what Paul says. Or don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to list a bunch of unrighteous expressions. Don't be deceived. Not the sexually immoral, that's our same word, porneia. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So um, it just, you know, pick your favorite sin out of that and just say, boy, they don't get the kingdom. Place yourself in the list and say, the unrighteous, no matter what it looks like, they don't get the kingdom. Verse 11, and such were, can somebody help me? Were, that's a past tense verb. Such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. 
Such were, meaning that there is a story that lives in the past, that is true. But there come a moment where they and you and me, we can all put our faith in Jesus, receive forgiveness, receive freedom that he offers to us. And that past really stays in the past. It doesn't have to be the story that goes here. When this nervous guy and this beautiful girl, when they come down to the altar and they confess their love for one another and they make their vows to one another, they are writing an entirely new future. And this is what Jesus does for people. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. The story that has been is not the story that has to be. You put your trust in Jesus. Put your life in his hands. A new story gets started from that point. So if you've never given your life to Christ today, I want you to know that today can be the day that you can come come into the category of, and such were some of you. For those of you who have, I want you to know that you can confess your sin, whatever it may be. Pick your favorite. Pick the thing that you're struggling with most. Set your marriage, your parenting, whatever it may be at the altar and just say, God, you're in charge here. And if there are things in me that need to die, I want them to die because from that death, you bring life. Such were some of you. Whatever that looks like for you. This is that moment where you, you, you and God need to do some business. So I want to invite us to do that. We're going to, I'm going to offer a prayer and, We'll stand and sing a song about God's greatness. And here's what I want you to know. That the God that we're singing about really is that great. He really does take histories and write new stories. He really does take people who struggle and bring them freedom. He really does take people who are guilty and they know that they're guilty and he gives them forgiveness. All of those things are true. He really can create a different future for you. Let's pray together. Um, Father, in Jesus' name, I simply ask that you would now... um, I mean, I think you've said the things that needed to be said to us collectively, but God, would you please um, bring that to a very sharp point for us so that we're not guessing as to what you want, so that we're not guessing as to what you um, desire for us to do, so we're not guessing as to what the next step may be. If there's somebody in here or watching online who needs to put their faith in you for the first time, I pray that today would be the day that they experience salvation and uh surrender all of the sin and the junk and stuff that is their life to you. And if there's a person in here who uh, they've walked with you for a while, but there are things that are stuck in them, they too would do business with you in that moment. And you would deal with them as you do, according to incredible mercy and grace. Do that now. And I pray that um, as we sing about your greatness, that faith would rise up in us so that um, we'd be able to say, yeah, God's great enough to deal with my stuff, whatever it may be. I thank you for being our creator. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. That's us. Our lives are in your hands, and we're glad to have them there in Jesus' name. Amen.
Uh, if you have a Bible uh, this morning, I'm going to invite you to the book of Matthew, chapter 19. I'll, I'll read it, um, the text here in just a minute. But um, we've been working our way through this series, um, the pillars of our faith, these kind of big doctrinal um, important things that we need to hold on to and we need to remember. Uh, and today we're taking up the doctrine of creation. I, I want to set this up by, by saying it this way. Uh, the other night in the car, uh, my kids and I, there were a couple of kids. I can't remember how many were in my there was two or three, five, I don't know how many. There was, there was some kids in the car. And we got to talking about um, misunderstood lyrics of a song. Anybody with me on this? Anybody ever completely botched it? I mean, like, you're like, dude, whatever. And so I got tickled at myself because for the longest time, I thought Lucille had 400 kids. And if you're not quite cultured enough... To know that song, I will do for you what I did for my kids. I broke out the Kenny Rogers and made them listen to Lucille. That there were 400 children in the crop in the field. I played it for them and they said, that is what it says. No, it's four hungry children. Like four hungry children. Anyway, we had this whole thing. Um, and it was really funny. We laughed a lot. I probably laughed more than anybody. And I helped my kids, you know, be cultured by helping them see Kenny Rogers, later sing along to Kenny Rogers. So um, I, I'm telling you all that to say uh, nowhere are the lyrics of the story that God is telling more misinterpreted or misguided or uh, uh, misunderstood than the topic today of creation. Like in our moment, in the world in which we live, um, we're hearing 400 children, even though that's not the lyric that's, that was actually in place. And so I want to recognize that as we get going and say, in light of that, we will not say everything that needs to be said today. We're going to try to say the things that are the biggest pieces. And then this has to work itself out in our normal relationships, in the normal ways that we interact with the world and interact um, with uh, the, the people who make up that world, the individuals who make up that world. So um, the doctrine stated, um, if, um, doctrine of creation, the best we could come up with here, is that God, by his wisdom, power, and goodness, God created the cosmos to flourish and then entrusted it to humanity. By his wisdom, power, and goodness. God created the cosmos to flourish. Um, that's what the cultural mandate is what they call it. And for, in the, the very, I mean, like page one of the Bible, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. There's something in there that ties the flourishing of the world to humanity's willingness um, to engage in the ways that God wants um, us to engage. By his wisdom, power, and goodness, God created the cosmos to flourish and entrusted it to knuckleheads like you and me. Uh, and that part may have been the part that we're like, oh, God, come on, you could have done better. But he did. He entrusted it to us. So in Matthew um, chapter 19, invite you there. Uh, this may seem like a kind of a strange place to uh, um, do this particular um, sermon from, but I, I think the big, the big pieces, again, we're not going to say everything that needs to be said, but hopefully the big pieces uh, will fall into place for you. Uh, chapter 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him. He healed them there. Pharisees came up to him, tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce, divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command um, one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you, just note the two verbal differences there, allowed you to divorce uh, your wives, but... From the beginning, it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. We'll pause there because there's a little bit more we'll read here in just a second. But the big three pieces, first three pieces, um, come out of uh, this part. Number one, uh, there is a cultural conversation happening. Back to verse three, Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife uh, for any cause? Now, you um, you think to yourself, that's just kind of a weird question to throw up on Jesus. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Um, but what you need to know is that there was a cultural conversation going on there, just like there's a cultural conversation going on today about Marriage, the nature of marriage, about humanity, about male and female. There's a conversation then, conversation today. Uh, back then, uh, there was the folks who uh, typically tended toward the, a more restrictivist position and a more permissive uh, position. So that restrictive, the school of Shammai is what it's called. You'll win Bible trivia someday with that right there. Uh, the school of Shammai said this, uh, that except for um, adultery, you shouldn't divorce your wife. Uh, the more permissive, um, cued on the thing, uh, on the question, uh, for any cause. The school of Hillel, which was the more permissive side, said, uh, ladies, if you, like, made him a meal he didn't like, he could kick you to the curb. Pretty uncomfortable, huh? <laughs> sure is. It is. And back in those days, uh, you know, there, there was not a lot of economic certainty after the fact. So, I mean, this is, this is big stuff. That cultural conversation was happening then. And we're still in the midst of a cultural conversation of more restrictive positions and more permissive positions. And there's nothing new under the sun. That's what the Bible says. We're still engaged in conversations about um, these, these things. Uh, people will have substitutes. People will have questions. Uh, people will have uh, things that uh, uh, make it better, thing, and people will have things that make it worse. Sin steps into the created order, attaches itself to the goodness like a parasite, and then perverts it all. This is the cultural conversation into which uh, Jesus said. Just real briefly, um, some of the things that express itself today, maybe not can you divorce your wife for any reason, uh, but something along the lines of, well, uh, you know, it's kind of old thinking, antiquated thinking. Or, hey, I'm free. I can do what I want to do. Or, this isn't hurting anybody. Any of these sound familiar? These are the kinds of things that are happening there. Um, I, I just want to note here that into this cultural conversation, Jesus does have something to say. He holds an opinion. The very first two words of verse 4, he answered. <laughs> Jesus does have something to say. Uh, well, Jesus didn't address this. He has something to say. And what he is consistently doing, and I just want to say this out loud so that you and I understand. What he's consistently doing is holding forth the standard. All throughout the text here, um, both here as well as the rest of the Gospels and the church, um, the, the letters to the churches that followed, uh, they're just holding out the standard. They can't address every problem or every situation that comes up. They just hold out the standard. And that's one of the better ways um, to approach this. Uh, apparently, um, when they train treasury agents um, to uh, spot counterfeits, they lock them in a room, not with counterfeits. They lock them in the room with a genuine $100 bill. And then they have to learn everything that they can about this $100 bill. So that when a fake $100 bill comes along, they're like, oh, this isn't that. 
They spend so much time on the real thing that they can sniff out something that's false. Jesus does the same thing. I will say this. Nothing is too controversial for Jesus to step into. Um, nothing is uh, too difficult for him. He is not silent on this. He does have an opinion, and he will stand for the truth because he is the truth, and he can do nothing less. Where historical Christianity and the kind of cultural trends of our day where those two things get crossways. It's at that point right there, at that intersection, where uh, they run afoul of one another. It's at that intersection where the witness of the church and the truth is needed the most. We're swimming upstream all morning long on this issue to the cultural trends to commercials, uh, to stuff that shows up on Disney Channel, um, to uh, every other place that you can possibly imagine. We are swimming upstream, and Jesus has something to say. But at that intersection of cultural trends and the church's uh, uh, witness to the truth, at that intersection is where not only is the church needed, but also where the most uh, effective place to witness to the gospel often is. We step into that. We don't need to retreat. Augustine, um, third, uh, 300s was about when he lived, bishop of, uh, in North Africa, famous, famous writer. Here's one of the things he says. We are both, the church is both against the world and for the good of the world. The and doesn't quite translate, but you read his writings, this is what he means. Against the world, for the good of the world. It's both. Some people tend one way or the other, right? I'm going to be against the world. So they're mad about everything. Well, this ain't the way that it was when I grew up. It's not the way that it is when you grew up. And some of that needed to change. I noticed nobody amen that. I'm just noticing. And for the good of the world. Both, not one or the other. Both of those things are really, uh, really important. Jesus, I, I will just note here, this, Jesus is always sharpest. Not toward the struggler, but toward the religionist. Can we back up here for just a second? Verse 3. Uh, Pharisees came up to him, and what, what's my verb there? Uh, excuse me, my verb is tested. And tested him. Jesus is always sharpest towards the religious people who test him. They are determined that they have some sort of bargaining chip that they're going to uh, play in order to get God on their side here. They don't. They don't. So we want to be really thoughtful about how we engage not only this topic, but also uh, the world around us as we do so. Okay, uh, just quickly, uh, moving on to uh, this second big concept here. There is a cultural conversation. Jesus is not silent. He has something to say. Look at verse 4. Jesus answered them, Have you not read uh, that he who created them from the beginning uh, made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, shall hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Therefore they are no longer, so they are no longer two, one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So there is creation. Um, and what we want to say about that is that God did it. Uh, if you came thinking we were going to stake out a, a claim on how he did it and that kind of thing, we're not. Okay? He did it. That's what matters. The how, the process of it all, those are all fun conversations to have um, late at night when you're a college student. But uh, you know, when, the, the who is really what we're after here and the why. Creation. Um, there, there are two things that he said. One is there is design in this. God didn't just kind of willy-nilly throw this together. It wasn't um, on Fridays at my high school, um, they had um, Texas goulash. Anybody with me on this? 
where, where they take all the leftovers and threw them into some version of a casserole and put it in a bowl for you? You wonder why we have so many problems. <laughs> this is not God. He's not looking and going, what am I going to do for Friday? Oh, we'll just take the rest of the leftovers and put it all together and see what happens. There, there is a design here. And specifically, in verse 4, um, he, he, um, he, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And so here's what I want to say to you. Um, God created and he created male and female. And what we mean by that, and this is important to say out loud, in our moment where um, the, the cultural trends and, and the truth of the scriptures um, are, are very much um, at odds with one another, is that the biology that God created does not or is not um, yielding to the ideology that somebody else created. It's important to be clear on that. Because God did this, and he did it in his wisdom and power and goodness. And goodness. These are all really important things. Biology doesn't yield uh, to our ideology. The, the, the second part on this, and, and before we, you know, you don't want to jump on the religious bandwagon here. To You just don't want to do that because you, you end up on the other side here. The second part of that is the reality of our culture is there are people who genuinely struggle with these kinds of issues. If we took a poll in here, we don't have to because I know the answer. If we took a poll in here and we said, everybody raise your hand who knows somebody who's struggling with these issues, there would not be a hand that stayed down unless you're lying. Some of it is in our family. Some of it in our very close friend circle. Some of it's it's friends of friends, but we know somebody. We would all be raising our hand, every one of us. And it's people who struggle that need this kind of truthful tenderness to say, hey, here's the reality in which God, this is the best thing that God has for you. These are the, the good things that God desires for you. These are the things that we want. There is a tenderness to that um, and a truthfulness to that. I want to uh, just make a pastoral observation about male and female and how sin as a parasite kind of perverts these things. I'm going to step very, very gingerly um, into this, okay? Very gingerly, especially on this first part, because I think femininity gets corrupted by sin um, when, um, uh, when, boy, this is just thin, thin ice. I recognize this, okay? Courage, courage, Trent, courage. Um, femininity get, gets um, uh, twisted, perverted, if you will, um, when the need for control becomes the idol that you bow down to. And, and in doing so, it actually makes the world smaller for you. Well, no, 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 smaller. Because how many things can you genuinely control? Not very many. The, the other way, just by observation, that this gets twisted, that, that the parasite perverts it, um, is when you buy a lie, ladies, that you don't have a contribution to make to the world. And I just want to say, you do. And I'll, she's in the room. I told the 830, I wasn't sure I was going to pull this off. I'm going to go ahead and try. Um, my wife is in the room, and if you want to know one thing about my wife, there are many things to know about her that are amazing, but one thing about my wife, she is a healer. Um, I have said this to multiple people before. I don't know what it looked like 
when Peter put his hands on people and they got healed. I know what it looks like when my wife does. God's given her these profound skills and amazing abilities to, to, through physical therapy just to do some things. And I'm just like, that's amazing. Stunning. Imagine if you, in all of your giftedness, in all of the things that Jesus wants to do through you, imagine if you pulled that back and didn't offer that to the world. Ladies, listen to me. That's a, that's a very, very small, small world. And God wants you to be a part of the story that he's telling in the world. That's very thin ice for me. I know how masculinity gets jacked up. Masculinity gets jacked up when we buy the, the lie that power is the idol that we need to bow down to. We, we oftentimes associate it with physical prowess. Um, it's why we uh, make idols out of um, athletes and, and other folks who have this profound, profound uh, physical um, attribute, but power, when power becomes an idol. And what happens in light of that, just note, please, what happens in light of that, one, two kind of effects that I'll observe. One is, is that what we become is a kind of people who say this. Well, uh, this is the expression of masculinity. This one particular lane is the expression of masculinity. And therefore, men do not belong in the arts. Masculine men do not belong in the arts. And if you are artistic, well, that means something about you. I just want to point this out. To all of the men in here who hold um, artistic things in you, in you, David the king would go out and conquer enemies, bloodshed everywhere. He'd sit down under a tree with a harp and write a song about it. I mean, come on! We have artistic people in here. We have people who make things with their hands, men who make things with their hands, artistic people. That's a good thing. The, the second way that the, this masculinity gets perverted, I think, um, in particular, is, is affection. Because we associate it in this particular, masculinity only in this particular lane, sometimes we associate it in this particular lane, um, uh, we have kind of reduced male affection um, to a handshake or the bro hug. You with me on the bro hug? Every dude in here knows what, you come up, be like, hey man, you give him a little some of that, you wrap that around, pop, pop, and that's it right there. That's it. It's good. Done. We're good now. Then you st- step back and make sure you don't get too close. <laughs> but there is overwhelming sociological data that says men in friendships, and particularly men with sons who are affectionate with one another, are promoting the kind of security that produces really good, secure men. Does the world have an an abundance of really secure, good men? Are we running a little short on some of this sometimes? So you dads in here, earlier in the 830 service, uh, there was a brand new dad sat right back there. I just told him straight up, like, hug and kiss your sons. I mean, grab them, nuzzle them, all that kind of stuff when they're um, 13 months and when they're 13. Because they need it both times. And you want to create that kind of really strong, secure bond between you and your son. Your dad's in here. You do that. Do it. It's really a matter of our kind of Western, 
in particular American culture that pulls the affection um, out of some of these relationships or reduces it down to something very small. Um, I'll give you two examples. Uh, Last week, my Baylor Bears, the men's basketball team, uh, played K-State. They lost. It was at K-State and they lost. I'm okay, because we beat Texas last night. It's pretty great. All is is well in the world. Um, The the coach for K-State, his name is Jerome Tang. He was on Scott Drew's staff for 19 years. And there's a a little video that got posted on social media where when they saw one another, when they both got out onto the court, they ran up and embraced one another. And they just stood there hugging. None of this bro hug stuff. Like, they just stood there hugging, like talking to one another in the midst of a hug. And then it was a weird little thing, like they started to dance just a little bit, like nine or ten seconds worth. Because that's the kind of men that they are. Highly successful, highly achieving, and deeply, deeply respectful and loving towards the other. um, many of you know, we did some stuff with our Afghan friends um, last year. At one point, last spring sometime, we hosted a pizza party in the park that's right outside of a big apartment complex where a lot of them landed. And so this one particular uh, time, we're hosting a pizza, uh, pizza party, and um, this one guy served in the Army, big, tough dude, um, named Hossa. He comes walking by, and I'm like, hey, man, come, come, get some, come get some pizza. Like broken English, you know, that's like pizza, you know, and you come on. And like, he's like, oh, okay, okay. So he comes over. He grabs my hand. Except it wasn't like this. I mean, like full-on interdigitation, holding hands like we're on a date. Now, if you're in here and squirming along with me, I just want you to know I was squirming too. And we walked from about here to the back wall, maybe a little bit further to the pizza place, all the while talking in broken English. I have no idea what the conversation was about because... This dude was as masculine as they come, folks. Tough. Tough. Please hear me. I, I don't think we need to go back to Romans 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm good, okay? I really am. But there's something about saying, if you are an affectionate male, that means that, dot, 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 in our culture. That's one of the ways that the culture is trending. And I'm telling you, the Bible says... People who belong to a family, there is goodness and security that comes out of being affectionate with one another. You don't have to pervert masculinity in that way. Okay, that's design. Uh, second part is purpose. Purpose um, is this. <clears throat> um, in, in verse um, in verse five, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, first of all, marriage is foundational. It is foundational for human flourishing. God created the cosmos in his wisdom, goodness, and power. He created the cosmos to flourish. Foundational to that um, is marriage. Does that mean everybody has to get married? Look at me. Does that mean everybody has to get married? No. But there is a kind of supportive um, attitude um, towards this. Marriage is the foundational building block to human flourishing. It is um, the uh, best predictor of child poverty um, and and any number of other uh, complications in childhood. I mean, just on and on and on we could go. There's sociological data galore. Secondly, marriage is clearly defined in God's eyes. Clearly defined. Uh, Again, verse 5. Therefore, he created a male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother... Hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. 
That, that, is, that is marriage. A husband and a wife, a male and a female, joined together, joined together in God's eyes. This is what we're talking about when we talk about marriage. Um, culture will do as it wishes. Supreme Court will do as it wishes. Any number of other things will do as they wish. Um, we we are, are people who follow a king. And he is the one who created it and therefore um, is the one who uh, uh, gets to define it. And lastly, marriage is, the, and this is important to say in our day and in our age, marriage is the joining of lives inseparably. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. Um, in, in, in this instance, one plus one is equal to one. You would think. You really would. But here's the cool part. So many of us logically are on board with that. But there's a logic to marriage that is miraculous. And so we just, we just say, God, you're the one who made it. And you're the one that knows how it works. Therefore, we're going to let you tell us how it works. It's the joining food. So um, are there exceptions? Yes. Uh, we'll talk more about this one uh, here in just a second. Um, are there exceptions? Yes. But why, why are there exceptions? It's because of the hardness of the human heart. Not necessarily yours. For some of you, you've had to live through some really terrible circumstances in your marriage. Your heart may be tender. It may be um, your spouse's, that is. But it, it, these things happen because of the hardness of the human heart. Uh, the other thing that comes up, and I, just, I bring it up because it comes up. Um, culture, one of the narratives is, well, the Bible's not really all that pro-marriage. I mean, look at all those crazy Old Testament people. They married like multiple wives, you know, and no, 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 no. My, my response is the same every time. And I, just, I want to encourage you with this and equip you with this. When you read that and, you, and people ask, why, 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 why was it this way? Ask this question. How did it turn out for them? How did it turn out for Abraham with Hagar? With Joseph, with Rebecca and Leah and their two servants? How did it turn out for King David, for Solomon? Just keep reading. How did it turn out? Did it turn out well for anybody? No. So by telling the story, it's telling the story. Third word is the word authority. Look, look at verse 6 again. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. As the creator, God has the authority. We don't, and that's part of our problem with the issue. Like, we don't have the authority. Um, <clears throat> when we step out from under God's authority, when we live according to a couple of those lies we mentioned earlier, hey, no, I'm, it's not hurting anybody. I'm free to do what I want. Um, you know, you're kind of old school and you're thinking whatever it may be. When we step out from under the authority of God, um, what we say on the first step is, hey, I can do this on my own. When we're under the authority of God, we're saying, okay, God, I want you to give me direction. When we step out from that, first step is, I can do this on my own. The second step is, I have to do this on my own. And the last step is, oh my gosh, I'm on my own. And people who make it through that process, who step out of authority and move from, I can do this on my own, to, I have to do this on my own, to, oh my gosh, I'm on my own. When they realize there is no shepherd, and they do want 
They don't have a place to lie down. They do not have somebody watching over them. When they step out from under the authority and move down that terrible, terrible progression, um, it typically ends up one of two ways. One, they dive headfirst into anxiety. Oh my gosh, I'm on my own. What in the world am I going to do? And they cover it with any number of things or try to figure out how to live with it. Uh, Or number two, they go into violence. In order to enforce their way. So that they don't feel the idea that they're actually on their own. I'll just briefly point this out. Um, Cain kills Abel in Genesis chapter 4. And then, uh, right after that story, there's a run of a genealogy that is seven generations long. Seven is the number of fulfillment. So seven generations long. That ends with a guy named Lamech, who's a, uh, like a, like he's the, the, the big boss, uh, big bad boss of all, you know, the video games where you got to fight the bad guy at the end. He's that guy. And, and basically what, it's, what he says about him is, um, I will take the wives that I want and I will kill any young man who gets in the way. So women are hurt, young men are hurt. When we step out from under authority and we kind of work our way through, um, okay, God, you're in control. I'm going to let you do it. I'll follow your ways too. I can do this on my own. I have to do this on my own. Oh my gosh, I'm on my own. If we, if we find ourselves expressed in violence, what happens in this particular area? Women and young men are hurt. Here's our world, folks. Here's our world. As the creator, God has the authority to speak. And part of our problem is, is that we, we don't have the authority and that's that's our issue uh secondly look at verse seven and eight they said to him why then did moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away he said to them because of the hardness of your heart moses allowed did you note the difference in the verbs command versus allowed allowed you to divorce your wives but from the beginning it was not so questions about the authority of god is our problem not his that's our problem that's our issue He knows the difference between a genuine question and a leading question. Genuine question is, God, whatever you say is fine with me, but I sure don't understand. Leading question is, so God, let me, uh, let me ask you a question. And really it's just an excuse to continue continue to do the things that you wanted to do in the first place. And he knows the difference. Last thing on this, and uh, Tim Keller is famous for saying this. If we don't have a God that we can disagree with, we don't actually have a God at all. You, you've been to a fun house where you stand in front of the mirror and all of a sudden you um, is like larger than life, you know, size because it's just the way that it gets warped. If we don't have a God who can disagree with us, we're standing in front of a fun house mirror and all the, the God that I'm worshiping is just me on a bigger distorted platform. He has authority. And questions about his authority, that's my problem. That's not his. Last thing. He exercises authority for our good. Look at verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. He exercises authority for our good. There is a clear standard. There is a clear standard. Uh, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. You see that word, that phrase, sexual immorality? In the Greek, you spell it this way. P O R N. E-I-A. P-O-R-N-E-I-A. Porneia. Anybody? 
It's a catch-all term that says, hey, no matter how the parasite of sin expresses itself um, in this realm of sexuality, listen, it's still not what God desires. Everybody, I want you to draw a circle in your mind. Can you draw a circle in your mind? You got it? The edge of that circle, the boundary, if you will, of that circle is the covenant of marriage. Inside of that circle, inside the covenant of marriage, God says yes, and he blesses sexuality so that we have... um, Comfort and uh, encouragement and kids come into the world and any number of other things. Outside of that circle, it's no. Not because he's mean. Not because he's like, oh, God, you're so old school and you're thinking. But because it's not good. It's just not. There's an old preacher um, illustration. I'll go ahead and use it here. How many of you set fires in your living room? Well, I, one time I dropped it. No, 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 no. Like intentionally set fires in your living room. Maybe more than you think because you have a little like concrete box or metal box or something. Some of you turn the switch on or whatever. Maybe, you know, all of a sudden you got fire, right? But when I said set fires in your living room, you're thinking like right next to your couch on the carpet. Because a fire next to your couch on a carpet, that's bad. Can we agree with this? That's a fire inside of a fireplace, particularly on a cold night, which apparently we won't have anymore because it's February in Houston. I don't know, 80 degrees outside. A fire in a fireplace, though, is comforting, warming, soothing, enjoyable. The fire in the right context is a really good thing. The fire outside of the right context is particularly destructive. Do we need to connect the dots? Okay. Furthermore, society is starting to figure this out. Um, There's a book that came out last year um, called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. It's written by a lady. She does not know Jesus. Uh, She's British. Uh, Those two things don't correlate, by the way. Uh, But she's, I don't know, felt like I needed to say that. Um, she's a former um, columnist for Playboy and, and several other um, secular magazines. She wrote a book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, Louise Perry, and here's the quote coming out of that. In order to change the incentive structure, meaning instead of rewarding um, bad behavior and, and things that lead to uh, um, uh, kind of greater per- what we would call greater perversion in the world, in order to change the incentive structure, we would need a technology that, discour- that discourages Short-termism in male sexual behavior protects the economic interests of mothers and creates a stable environment for the raising of kids. So we want to promote good behavior among men. We want to protect the interests of moms, and we want to make sure that kids grow up in a stable environment. That's what we're after. And everybody can say amen to that. This is a good thing, yeah? Even the nice lady from London, this is what she's saying. And here's here's the, 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 boy, this, I mean, like highlight this. And we do already have such a technology. Even if it is old, clunky, and prone to periodic failure, it's called monogamous marriage. The world is figuring out that their way didn't work, and so they're saying, that way wasn't good. The Bible all along has said, that's not good, therefore, it's not going to work. God has the authority. Last thing. Uh, This is a strange passage to finish with, but I want to go ahead and finish verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry at all. (laughs) Hey, Jesus, you raised the bar pretty high. Uh, Knuckleheads. 
Uh, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those whom, to, to whom it is given. There are eunuchs who've been so from birth. There are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by um, men. And there are eunuchs who've been made, uh, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And so what he's saying is that there is a path of singlehood um, for any number of reasons. And you walk that path and you walk it with Jesus. And there is a path of married life. And if that's the deal, you walk that path and you walk it with Jesus. Either way, two things are true. Number one, the truth carries a certain punch here. That's why they're like, Jesus, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. The truth carries a punch and it always does. It always does. Um, it, it is though this difference, the truth that people lived out in this way, either singleness with Jesus, living according to the standards that he has set, or married with Jesus and living according to the standards that he set. Either one of those, <clears throat> either one of those, the truth carries a punch. And furthermore, it's that difference that set Christians apart so distinctly in the first century Roman Empire. Church family, this is the 21st century. And it's this difference that will set us apart in the 21st century Western world. The truth carries a punch. And the second part is that uh, the, the sacrifice is real. So the word here is altar. The sacrifice is real. So, you know, just picture me in a suit. Doesn't happen very often, but just picture me in a suit. Really nervous guy in a tuxedo right here to my left. Really beautiful girl coming down the aisle in white. We have this moment. And what do we call this gathering area right here? What do we call it? The what? The altar. The altar. Because you're going to the altar. Like you're going to get married here at the altar. Somebody help me. An altar is a place where things get sacrificed and die. Selfishness gets sacrificed and dies. Like singleness gets sacrificed. And I was like... Maybe my preferred future gets sacrificed and dies. It's an altar. It's an altar. But from that altar comes something beautiful and lasting and amazing and good for the world. From that comes something incredible. And some of you have been at it for decades. Good for you. Stay at it. Some of you have been, I mean, you're, you're counting in terms of, oh, yeah, we're entering our fourth decade, whatever. Like, good for you. Stay at it. Stay at it. The sacrifice is real. I, I want to finish here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 9. Here's what Paul says. Or don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to list a bunch of unrighteous expressions. Don't be deceived. Not the sexually immoral, that's our same word, pornea. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So um, it just, you know, pick your favorite sin out of that and just say, boy, they don't get the kingdom. Place yourself in the list and say, the unrighteous, no matter what it looks like, they don't get the kingdom. Verse 11, and such were, can somebody help me? Were, that's a past tense verb. Such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. 
Such were, meaning that there is a story that lives in the past, that is true. But there come a moment where they and you and me, we can all put our faith in Jesus, receive forgiveness, receive freedom that he offers to us. And that past really stays in the past. It doesn't have to be the story that goes here. When this nervous guy and this beautiful girl, when they come down to the altar and they confess their love for one another and they make their vows to one another, they are writing an entirely new future. And this is what Jesus does for people. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. The story that has been is not the story that has to be. You put your trust in Jesus. Put your life in His hands. A new story gets started from that point. So if you've never given your life to Christ today, I want you to know that today can be the day that you can come into the category of, and such were some of you. For those of you who have, I want you to know that you can confess your sin, whatever it may be. Pick your favorite. Pick the thing that you're struggling with most. Set your marriage, your parenting, whatever it may be at the altar and just say, God, you're in charge here. And if there are things in me that need to die, I want them to die because from that death, you bring life. Such were some of you. Whatever that looks like for you. This is that moment where you, you, you and God need to do some business. So I want to invite us to do that. We're going to, I'm going to offer a prayer and We'll stand and sing a song about God's greatness. And here's what I want you to know. That the God that we're singing about really is that great. He really does take histories and write new stories. He really does take people who struggle and bring them freedom. He really does take people who are guilty and they know that they're guilty. And he gives them forgiveness. All of those things are true. He really can create a different future for you. Let's pray together. Um, Father, in Jesus' name, I simply ask that you would now... um, I mean, I think you've said the things that needed to be said to us collectively, but God, would you please um, bring that to a very sharp point for us so that we're not guessing as to what you want, so that we're not guessing as to what you um, desire for us to do, so we're not guessing as to what the next step may be. If there's somebody in here or watching online who needs to put their faith in you for the first time, I pray that today would be the day that they experience salvation and uh surrender all of the sin and the junk and stuff that is their life to you. And if there's a person in here who uh, they've walked with you for a while, but there are things that are stuck in them, they too would do business with you in that moment. And you would deal with them as you do, according to incredible mercy and grace. Do that now. And I pray that um, as we sing about your greatness, that faith would rise up in us so that um, we'd be able to say, yeah, God's great enough to deal with my stuff, whatever it may be. I thank you for being our creator. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. That's us. Our lives are in your hands, and we're glad to have them there in Jesus' name. Amen.